love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 this morning. If you don't mind, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word if you're willing and able, just out of reverence for it. We'll begin our reading just with a few verses in uh, chapter number 5. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15, then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and I'll explain where we're going this morning. So uh, Paul writes to the church at Galatia, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, um, we come to you once again just to thank you for the immeasurable grace that you've extended to us in your Son. Father, Jesus Christ is the um, truly the only reason we're here. Father, if we're here for any other reason this morning, I pray that you would change your hearts. God, if we're here for ourselves, if we're here to... Uh, glean something from your word, Father, for our own benefit. If we're here uh, for the sake of our husband or our wife or even our parents, Lord, um, as good and as noble it is to obey and as good and as noble as it is, Father, to um, give ourselves over um, because of another person, Father, it's, um, it's not the ultimate end. Father, all things are for your honor and for your glory. Father, your son should be exalted this morning. Father, your spirit should reign full and free in our hearts and in our lives as we gather together. So the activity, Father, should be undergirded um, for, the, for the sake of the, of the gospel, for Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So, Father, as I stand and preach this morning, I pray that I preach for your sake and for your sake alone. Father, I pray that um, it would not be to exalt myself, Father, um, not to exemplify a great um, oratory example. Um, because I know that that will not be the case. But Father, um, as was mentioned in a prayer previous, um, may we just be faithful. God, as we gather together this morning, may we not do great things. May we be faithful children of God, um, sons and daughters, saved out of this world and out of a gratitude of heart. Um, we gather together to do the things that you have prescribed that bring you the most honor and the glory. So Father, um, as we gather this morning as a people saved out of the world, Father, a people from um, a number of different places, a number of different upbringings, Father, a number of different um, ways that we've been brought here together, Lord, um, different locations, different backgrounds. Father, um, may we exemplify Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, that great mystery, uh, Father, where you bring people together that shouldn't be. Father, and that's a light to a lost and a dying world, and that's a light to us. So, Father, we pray this morning as we gather together that we exalt your Son by exalting your truth. And we exemplify a love for you and exemplifying a love for one another. God, give us a greater love for Christ this morning and a greater love for each other. Father, I just, um, we just recognize our desperate need of you this morning. Father, to stand forth and to um, accomplish your purpose in us because we realize that outside of that, this morning will have been in vain. And we do not want to have met, Father, in vain. So God, do what you do best and um, accomplish your work this morning in us, making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We know this is your will. Paul tells us that in Romans as he writes to the church and subsequently to us. 
that um, it is our ultimate, it is your ultimate goal to conform us to the very image of your Son. So we trust you to do that this morning with the means you've prescribed, Father, particularly your Word and your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you've been with us, and I know some of you are visiting this morning, we welcome you and praise God for your, your presence among us. Uh, but over the past several months, we've just taken it as a task to trek through the book of Mark, verse by verse. And last week, we were in Mark chapter number 7, and uh, we spent a good deal of time in the first portion of that scripture. And uh, so one may wonder why Galatians this morning, I don't generally preach like this. I, I like... Um, much better just the verse-by-verse exposition. Uh, But this morning will be a little bit different because it's going to be somewhat of application to last week's sermon. So it won't follow the general uh, pattern that I I typically do. Um, But try to drive home and um, meditate upon the passage uh, from last week. And you may remember, and if you don't, I'll bring you up to speed if you weren't here with us. Um, That that passage we dealt primarily with what we would return today as legalism. Legalism. I think that people coming into the church, people that are saved out of the church, and people that aren't even in the church uh, generally have a tendency to be extremists. We may not recognize that, but um, I think by nature many of us are. And you may deny that this morning, but doesn't the extremist always deny that he's an extremist? Right? Right? The legalist or the libertarian, uh, the man who uh, runs off into a right field and uh, upholds standards um, that are not uh, ex- explicitly biblical um, to the biblical narrative and the biblical law of God and even usurp um, the authority of God's word by elevating it above it, doesn't believe he's an extremist or a legalist. He just sees himself as a biblicist. Um, he never really recognizes the fact that um, he has... Um, equated certain standards with the law of God or the commandments of God and even usurped them and placed them in a greater authority than much of of God's word. The Pharisees didn't see that Um, and many legalists today um, don't as well. The the libertarians, if we can name them that, I'm not talking about the political group, Um, I'm talking about those that would uh, err on the other side. Um, full antinomians is what we would call them. We talked about that a little bit last week. An antinomian is one who is lawless. Anti meaning against, and nomia is the term for law, against the law. Legalist in essence, it's interesting that uh, extremists often end up in the same place, practically speaking, on one end or the other. Um, the legalist is antinomian by nature. Why? Because he rejects the law of God by upholding his own standards And the true antinomian, the true libertarian um, that Paul's going to deal with here in many other places, such as Romans 5 and 6, um, also um, is uh, is an extremist. And they just, um, they abandon the word of God altogether for their own standards. And both of them end up in the same place, rejecting the law of God, rejecting the commandments of God according to their own standards. And it's funny, they hate each other, and really they... Um, hate the thing that they are, um, the one who would reject um, God's word and run to another end. And both of them end up in the, the same place. Um, it's, same, it's similar with many other things. Um, it's like the universalist and the hyper-Calvinist. The hyper-Calvinist, uh, when I ask about evangelism, um, veers off into the fact that God is sovereign and in control and He'll save whom He wants to be saved. William Carey I've had a conversation with a, with a group of pastors in the 1800s on that very issue 
Um, as he desired to go into the world, preach the gospel, that men may be saved, and Christ would receive the reward of his suffering. And uh, men gathered around and said, if God wants to save them, young man, God will save them. Um, thus, it stifled evangelism. But it's interesting, you go over to the universalist who believes that God will reach every man regardless because he's so gracious and compassionate. Um, thus, it equates to a lack of need for evangelism. And how uh, you can have men on both ends of the spectrum, but practically they fall um, in the same place. We as... Um, as God's people want to um, guard against that. We want to hold um, great truths, although uh, oftentimes in tension, um, in great balance, um, believing both. Understanding that His ways are above our ways and that His thoughts are above our thoughts. So I'm going to give you a few more thoughts this morning on the issue of God's law and even legalism. You know, the Apostle Paul here is, um, is really discoursing for us in the book of Galatians. Um, the idea of legalism. If you were to go to Galatians chapter number 1 and verse number 6, you would read this as he um, writes an introduction to those at the church. He says, or the churches, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a differing go- to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For, I, for if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul is initially writing to the book of Galatians and these churches uh, for the particular reason, because there are men within the church that are preaching a false gospel. Here in just a few moments, he's going to tell us exactly who those men are. Verse number, uh, chapter 2 and verse number 4, you read these words. And this occurred, why? Because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour. Love the Apostle Paul. We didn't give in one, one hour, not even one second. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed for me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And what he's saying is, is he's saying that there are many men who are coming in and they're preaching a false gospel. Who are these men? These men are men that stealthily came in with intentions because they had heard um, of what we were preaching and teaching to you, which was a gospel of liberty and a gospel of grace. And I was received fullheartedly um, by men like James, Cephas, John, and Peter. Verse number 11, you read these words. Now when Peter came to Antioch, um, I withstood him to the face, or his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came before James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And what you see here is that, with, is that Paul, just to summarize, withstood Peter to the face because he, uh, Peter, would withdraw himself from the Gentiles, particularly during eating. 
And that should ring a bell if you were here last week. Because in Mark chapter 7, there were cleanliness and uncleanliness laws, ceremonial, according to the traditions, not only of, or not only to, according to the law of God, but particularly to the traditions of the elders. To eat with the Gentiles would have made them unclean and therefore unable to approach God. So when certain people of the circumcision came up um, to the churches, Peter, who would eat with the Gentiles, would no longer eat or would no longer do it because of what we would call peer pressure. Verse 13 says that Peter was a hypocrite, even to the point that Barnabas was carried away because of his hypocrisy. So Paul withstands Peter face to face. Why? Because it was a gospel issue. Um, He asked him the question, If you, being a Jew... Live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews. Why do you compel the Jews to live, or Gentiles to live as Jews? And what he's saying is, he's saying, look, you forsaken, you forsaken certain things because of the liberty that you have in Christ. So, question, why are you compelling Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, of all people, should have known better. Um, he should have known better. Why? Because he's the guy in Acts chapter 10 who receives revelation from the Lord in a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with all sorts of animals in it. And God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter says, not me, Lord. <laughs> not so, Lord. Uh, Peter, um, why? And it, and, it, and it was virtuous. The reason was virtuous. He says, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And God responds to him with these words, what God has cleansed must not, you must not call common or unclean. Verse 28, he met a Gentile, a Roman centurion, from whom God sent to him to receive the gospel. Um, a man by the name of Cornelius. Well, verse 28, Peter says to a group of men who are gathered um, in the conversation with Cornelius, he, re- he says these words, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to, to, to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Verse 34, Peter preaches, In truth I have received that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whom fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. He then preaches the gospel to them according to Christ and asks them the question, then who will forbid them to receive baptism? You can imagine that if they're not, um, if they're not fellowshipping with Gentiles, they won't even eat with Gentiles. You can imagine the controversy that would have, been, uh, would have happened over someone um, who wanted a Gentile that wanted to receive baptism. So he asked them, then if God, this is God's word, who in the world here will forbid um, something like baptism? And not one of them steps forward. Amen. So given the context, Peter in Galatians, um, he's a guy who knows better. And what he's doing in Galatians is horrific. That it needs to be so horrific that it needs to be publicly corrected. Um, he was reverting back to the tradition of the elders in some sense of the term. In one, Paul pretty much calls this foolish. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. Before, who I, who, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Why are they fools? Because they had seen Christ and Him crucified. So he simply asked them in verse number 2, Did you receive the Spirit of God or the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You get this wrong. And this is important because you get the answer wrong. And he says it's all in vain. It means it's empty. It means it's... It's worthless. You speed up to Galatians 4 and verse number 8, and you read these words. 
Paul writes, but then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God or um, after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not turned, you have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was uh, in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? And what he's doing is he's trying to call them back to remembrance at the, at the birth of the church. He's trying to call them back to the gospel and that thing which had saved them and the liberty that they had in Christ. So why in the world are you um, going back to the weak and the beggarly elements, he, he says. Later in this, he's going to argue that, um, that one of, the, one of the, the, the primary elements, if not the primary element, is going to be circumcision. That there's going to be Jews that have stealthily come in that are going to try to bind their consciences and put upon them a yoke which they cannot bear. Um, <clears throat> a yoke which they cannot bear. And that if they bear that yoke, I'm um, in Galatians, he says, then you bring yourself again back under the entirety of the Old Testament law. And that if you're going to um, give over in one point and add anything to the gospel, then you put yourself under the entirety of the Old Testament law and the Mosaic economy, and thus you are cursed and condemned. Why? Because the Old Testament to an unbeliever um, is, a, is a curse. And thus you see... Uh, we come to uh, verse chapter 5 and verse number 3. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. That a man who uh, argues that circumcision is necessary um, for saving grace, then it is no grace at all. And that if you want to argue even circumcision alone, then you become an entire debtor to everything that Moses has written. And I testify again to every man that becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole entire law. You have become estranged from Christ, he says. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. You ran well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. So I hear as he enters into the church. Um, and you see all throughout the New Testament... The book of Hebrews, the book of Acts, Acts 10, Acts 15, Galatians, and other places. That this is a constant tension within the church. Why? Because you have an Old Testament uh, Judaism who are steeped in law. Um, and steeped in law so much that they're utilizing the law for, for um, salvation. And what do they hear? They hear a man come. <laughs> they hear a man come uh, who was at one point um, one of them. And he's preaching this like the law is no more necess is no longer necessary, um, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But what they hear in their mind from Old Testament Judaism is that everything that we have done and everything that has come before us is is, is all for naught and it's for nothing. So you can imagine kind of the anger or the bitterness or just the indignation and sometimes even a righteous indignation or a, a, a seemingly virtuous indignation. You know, that the Paul will be able to relate to late at some point as he rec as he remembers and reminds us of his past that even as a, in Judaism that he did it for um, what he thought was the glory of God although it wasn't therefore he counted it all as loss that there was virtuous reasons for defending the faith or his 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 faith which was apart from Christ 
Um, but at the end of the day, in Philippians, he says it was all for naught and all for loss. So you see these men coming up, just like in Mark chapter number 7, who are there to defend the truth and defend their faith, and they even have somewhat um, uh, naturally virtue, what we would call virtuous reasons, although it's all in vain. What's their problem? We've got a guy coming, and he's preaching that um, the law is done. You know? Um, and that's and if you were to go to Romans, you don't need to turn there now. Um, the, the Apostle Paul arf, often argues with an invisible man. <laughs> he's like a lawyer who is he, he's playing chess with his audience, and he's thinking ahead. And he's thinking, if I say this, what will they say? So he often questions himself. And in Romans chapter number five, after he talks about justification by faith alone, and he's went through um, the law, and he's went through the depravity of man, and he's just declared Jesus Christ to be the salvation of all men. In, ver- in chapter six and verse number one, you read these words: "What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound?" Because inevitably, what's going to happen is you're going to have somebody that's coming that, uh, that, that when they hear the message of this man, the Apostle Paul, or Peter, or any other apostle that's preaching the gospel, is that you're preaching a gospel that says that grace covers everything, therefore you have liberty um, to do anything and everything that you want. You know, that's still a message that's preached today, isn't it? You know, you talk, about, uh, you talk to people, and I, I come from a particular area where it's steeped in this, you know. Uh, people who uh, uh, deny perseverance of the saints or what they would call um, eternal security. Um, why? Because of the seeming uh, overwhelming, and it's not seeming, it's overwhelming, um, superficial professions of faith in which men and women and children um, publicly identify with this religion, Christianity, and even Jesus Christ Himself, who walk up from their knees and leave the altar never to return again. Or have any fruit of salvation. So the so the ultimate conclusion in their mind is is that um, God saved them, but um, they're living lawlessly, and that if you want to believe that God would save a man that can live lawless, he must have lost his salvation, and that's where they 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 end up going right. Um, but we would argue differently. We would argue the same thing that they're arguing in a sense that a man who is saved cannot live lawlessly, um, that he cannot be antinomian. So on the one hand, you have the legalist who wants to uphold standards, um, even to the point of, of it being the mark of a Christian in salvation. Um, saving grace is, 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 is hanging on that. But on the other end, you have these people who hear a message of grace in Christ, um, who think that you are preaching a doctrine or a salvation that uh, has no, um, that, that allows a contingency plan for no um, righteous works at all. Because that's what happened in Romans. That's what happens in Galatians. Paul is preaching grace and Paul is preaching liberty. Um, So inevitably he encounters somebody who says, so what are you saying then? That if it's all of grace, then anybody can just get saved and live however they want. You know, they can continue in adultery. They can continue in uh, lasciviousness. They can continue in sexual immorality. They can continue lying. They can continue all this. You know what Paul says? Paul says, God forbid Certainly not. Now, in the original language, you could translate that, no, 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 no. <laughs> there is no way. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then he goes in and argues the sufficiency of the gospel. And what you have is you have these two um, extremes. You have the legalists who uphold um, unbiblical standards for the 
for uh, saving uh, for the purpose of salvation. And then you have antinomians who, who are just lawless explicitly, uh, who say that you can be saved and live any way that you desire, and that technically you're under the blood of Christ and He'll forgive you for it. So, so many uh, quote-unquote Christians today engage in certain sins. Why? Because I know that Jesus will uh, forgive me for that. Let me just go ahead and re- just say that we reject that at this church. Okay? That the perseverance of the saints, I believe in eternal security, and technically whenever somebody is saved by the grace of God, Jesus Christ will never lose them. He will never leave them nor forsake them. But we also recognize that God utilizes a means to accomplish the end. That it's not only a legal declaration that you are saved by the grace of God and righteousness is imputed to you, but God gives His Spirit, the new heart, and a number of other things to keep you. That the reason you will never be lost is because God supplies the means to keep you, which is the Spirit of God living and dwelling in you. So that's why on the other end, you, again, you have extremes, you have these tensions, right? God says He'll never leave you nor forsake you. But in Hebrews and many other places, you see these warnings for those um, who... Um, who uh, who tempt the Lord, if you will, and presume upon God that He'll save them even though they're living um, godless lives. So why, how, how is it that God can say that and it appears that, you're going to, that you could lose your salvation, but at the same time He says, I'll never, I'll always, I'll, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Um, why? Because we understand that God's Spirit and other means are the means by which He accomplishes the end. And that if you're living a life of godlessness and lawlessness, and you have no regard for God's commands at all, and then you have no, um, you should have no assurance um, that you are one of His. That's the argument of the Bible. But if God's fruit, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of grace and the, the, whole, the, Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit are living and dwelling in you and you have the marks of uh, 1 John and God has given you a new heart and He's given you all these things, then you can walk with 100% full assurance. Why? Because God is actively in you working to accomplish that end, to bring you to that end, which is final salvation. In no way earning it, but God working in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. And he argues the exact same thing in in Galatians as well, um, where he says, It is not I, but Christ that works in me. You know, it is I, yet not I, is what he says. I'm living, but I'm not living. You know, I'm working, but I'm not working. It is like in Philippians when he says, I do, yet not I. Or, um, I mean, it is, it is God's will to, to, to work and to do of his good pleasure in, in me. So you see the great tension there. And those are, the th- those, are the, those are the extremes that we want to guard against. And the church has always been riddled with these. You know, we have men in church history like Marcion. Um, you may not recognize the name, but... Um, um, he rejected the Old Testament law altogether. You know, he was um, lawless in that sense. He didn't like anything Jewish, so he dismissed the entire Old Testament law and anything, and, and anything in the New Testament that reeked of Judaism or had a Jewish flavor to it. He was all about grace, you know, and not about the law. Um, and that, that certain view lended itself to certain antinomian lawlessness. Or you can fall on the other side and you can just see... Um, you know, the, the, the Old and the New Testament is just flattened out, you know. Um, th- these are different views of the law. There's a lot of different views of the law, you know. Um, some would make such a dissection that the Old Testament law has nothing to do or no application for the believer today um, or to the church. Marcion did that. 
Or you can take the law um, of God and you can take it to the point where you just flatten it totally out and you end up equating everything in the Old Testament to the New Testament church. That the Old Testament is just, quote, a, a different administration than the New Testament. And that they're essentially the same. And that men are saved under the Old Testament just like they were saved under the New Testament. Um, but uh, they, they flatten everything out so you end up um, baptizing infants and giving infants to the Lord's table. And not all do that. But some do that because they equate the Old Testament exactly with the New, and they see such a, a, um, such a s- s- similarity. It's not, not just a similarity. They look the same. They are the same. God's people were the same in the Old Testament as the New, and you get this, um, uh, this transposing of Israel on the church and, and back and forth. And, and so you get this equation of Old and New. Um, so you transfer things from the Old Testament to the New, and, and I, think that's, um, I think that's inaccurate. And where do you get the um, Christian Reconstructionist who takes the law of God and wants to reconstruct society, um, just like under all the Old, Old Testament Israel laws? And, and there's a lot of difficulties with that. And where do you become like the Seventh-day Adventist who takes every single thing that the law is totally applicable today, thus they observe the Sabbath laws, and today they're out on the uh, lake somewhere, while yesterday they enjoyed worship but also they take the dietary laws and they take a number of, of all, um, all the laws in the Old Testament and try to live under them. You know, I had a conversation in seminary as I was working in a hospital with a Seventh-day Adventist who was very, who was very um, um, uh, sincere, um, very sincere as he reached out to me that because I worshipped on the Lord's Day that I was um, under the condemnation of the law and that I was going to die and go to hell. Um, because of that, very sincere and virtuous in some sense, naturally, but I think very, um, I think very wrong. So you come to Galatians, and and Paul labors to teach us that we are free from the law. But the book of Galatians is the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. He labors hard to teach us that in the that the Christian is free from the curse, from the condemnation, and the legal claims of the law. And then he moves on to teach us that Christians fulfill the law, but in a particular way. And, and let me just say that I give all of those um, kind of synopsises, and there's more out there. There's nuances of each. So uh, I'm not condemning all those. I want you to know this morning that it is more difficult than it seems. Okay? It is much more difficult than it seems. And I'm going to tell you why. Because all throughout the New Testament, uh, particularly, what you read is that the law is gone. Um, and this is what I'm trying to get for us to understand today, how is the law applicable, right? Because we don't want to just abandon all of the Old Testament law. Why? Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for you. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the church. But what text is he writing about? He's writing about the Old Testament Scriptures, right? That contained within the Old Testament Scriptures. And prior to that verse, um, it says that he writes to Timothy and he says that uh, uh, you've known the, script, the Holy Scriptures from your youth and it was, able, it was wise to make you... Um, it, was why, it made you wise unto salvation. It was able to make thee wise unto salvation, right? That, that what was contained in the Old Testament Scriptures for you, Timothy, was actually um, um, powerful enough. It contained Christ and the Gospel enough, just like in Galatians, that the Gospel was preached unto Abraham, or preached unto them um, and, and many other places. Um, that what was contained in the Old Testament Scriptures contained the Gospel um, to where it would save men. Timothy was saved under the Old Testament Scriptures, yet under the New Covenant. Um, as the new covenant is inaugurated. And then he flows from that, that all scripture is profitable. 
It profits you, Timothy. It profits the church, Timothy, that the Old Testament scriptures were given for uh, doctrine to be taught, for reproof and correction to um, correct you and instruct you in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work, that your salvation and your sanctification... Um, is that the Old Testament Scriptures contain Christ and the Gospel enough that it can save you and train you up in the way that you ought to go and make you fit for every good work. And we understand that that applies to the New Testament as well, but it applies to the Old Testament um, just the same. Just a further and a more progressive uh, revelation. And what you have today is you have some that want to take the, the Old Testament Scriptures and can them like Marcion. But then there are some today that want to take the law um, you know, to, to a place of legalism and say that you must do these things. And it's all applicable, so much so that if you don't do these things, that you're unsaved. Why? Because Jews have been doing this for centuries and millennia. And we don't want to do that. So then what, the, for the Christian, you know, where does the law stand? Right? How does the Old Testament relate to New Testament Christianity? And I just want to posit to you it's not that easy. And you can understand why people go off in one direction or another. Why? Because in Acts chapter 13 and verse number 38, you read these words. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware lest um, what has been spoken to you in the prophets come upon you. And, and what he's saying there, he's saying that, that, that Christians are freed from the law, that it cannot that it, that, that it cannot free us, but Christ frees us, that it doesn't have the power. Then you go over to uh, 15 uh, verse 10, and you read these words. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor, were able, nor we were able to bear? Right, talking about circumcision there and some of the Old Testament elements, if you will, those weak and beggarly elements. He says, we, we, they couldn't do it. You know, they couldn't fulfill it. They couldn't keep the law in a way that was saving. Why are you putting a yoke or a burden upon these people um, to, to be saved by it when you, they couldn't do it and neither can we? Right? Then you go to Romans chapter number 7 and verse number 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to you that those who know... To those who know the law. So I'm speaking to those who know the law. That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And this is the idea. So that she is no adulteress, though she has married another. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body, through the body of Christ. That you have died to the law. That is, it's just like uh, with, with the marriage illustration, right? Um, that as long as the uh, husband is alive, then you are bound to it. But once the husband dies, you, you, are, you, are, you have liberty to um, marry another. This is the idea. Now you're married to the new covenant. The old covenant has died if you've came to Christ. We could go on to Galatians chapter 3, um, which we were at in verse number 19, where he says these words, what purpose then does the law serve, right? It was added because of transgressions till the seed. And you may have a translation that um, uh, capitalizes that because the seed there is speaking of Christ should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. But the idea there is, is that um, the law is utilized for a purpose um, to teach men. Um, and you see that in Romans chapter 7. Um, 
Colossians chapter 2, verse number 16. You read uh, these words. For by Him all things were created. Um, sorry, I was reading one sixteen. Uh, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths, which are shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one cheat you out of reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels and so forth and so on. And we could go to Hebrews. Hebrews is replete in these scriptures. Hebrews 7.11, Hebrews 8.13. So what, per, then, then what is the Christian's relationship to the law? We're dead to it, right? And if that was all that we had concerning the law, it would be pretty simple, wouldn't it? <laughs> Right? It would be cut and dry. The time frame is done. There's no abiding relevance. The problem is, is that that's not all that the New Testament says about the law. All of these emphasize the impotence of the law, the deficiency of the law, the inability of the law, the temporary nature of the law, and the severed relationship of the law. If you were to go to Romans chapter 3, um, knowing what we've just read, you would read this question and then we could ask the question, how is it that we should answer this. If you were to read Romans chapter 3 and verse 27, you'd read these words. Where's boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the God of the Gentiles also. Since there is, not, there is one God who will justly, justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So everybody say, say the same way. How? By faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? And if, if, if all we knew was the scriptures we just read, we would say, yes, Paul. Like we, the, the law is nullified. But what does Paul say? God forbid. Certainly not. On the contrary, we actually establish the law. So you can understand how you could walk away from reading the Apostle Paul and you're just like, a, you know, just... Caught in a whirlwind at a carnival, you know, stepping off of the uh, stepping off of the uh, tilt to whirl, and just uh, Paul almost seems schizophrenic, but he's not. He's not. We'll get to why he's not here in just a moment. You actually see a similar thing in Galatians chapter five. Um, you see him argue in a passage that we've already uh, read in verse number thirteen. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. So I, you know, you're not you're not bound to the law. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you may not catch it at first, but let's dig in just a little bit. We've already heard the argument you're no longer under the law. The law was a schoolmaster. You have liberty in Christ. Um, and he says, for you, brethren, just don't use that liberty as a, an occasion for the flesh. It's not, you know, you're not a libertarian. You can't just do anything you want and still suspect to be saved. Um, but, but, uh, but how is the law fulfilled? It's fulfilled like this. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what that, you, we could, you know, we could actually say, we could say that you're not under the law, but the law is fulfilled in one word and it's fulfilled in you in this. It's in the law. Because that is a quotation from Leviticus. Chapter number 19, if I'm not mistaken, I think verses 9 through 18. But that is actually Old Testament law. You know, that, that what Paul is doing is he is utilizing um, the instruction out of the Old Testament, which was undergirded, that law was a law of love. And that Jesus actually 
calls back to that um, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 and on, um, to refer to the greatest and the second greatest commandment. What's the first greatest? Love God. What's the second greatest? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Paul is alluding to that. But that's Old Testament law. And what Paul is saying here is, Paul is saying you're no longer under the law, um, but you fulfill the law in how? Keeping the law. Now, if you're not confused yet, <laughs> um, I don't know what would confuse you. So Paul responds in Romans 3 that it should never be, right? That we actually establish the law by faith. Romans 7, 12 says um, that the law is good. You know, um, as Christians today, we're taught that the law is um, icky. You know, it's uh, mean. It's a bondage. It's a yoke, and it is. And Paul even says that. Peter even preaches that. Jesus even goes through that. Right? Like it is, in, in, in a sense, to the unbeliever. But Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 12, so then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good cause death for me. May it never be. Brother, it was sin, and the law is spiritual. Romans 13, 8. Um, you read another passage. Romans 13, 8. Actually, the Apostle Paul takes the law of God and, um, and uses it as his basis to argue to love one another. Verse number 8, you read, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet it. And if there is any other commandment, all are, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, well, Paul, I thought that we're dead to the law. Like, why are you bringing up the Ten Commandments? That's under Mosaic Covenant, you know? Um, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of, of the law. And we could go on and on. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 11, um, and many other places. We could talk about the apostles' utilization of the law. Well, we understand Jesus was under the Old Covenant, but many people argue um, but the, the apostles were not. They're post-resurrection. They're post-ascension. They received the new covenant and the blood. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 9 and Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Ephesians 6, right? Children, obey your parents and the Lord. Why? Because it's the first commandment. It's the first commandment with promise, right? Well, Paul, don't, don't you understand the law? We're dead to the law, right? The mosaic economy's gone. Like, we understand that. But they're going to use it because it's profitable, Right? They're going to use it because the Old Testament contains um, in, in some form the gospel and the, ability, and the uh, mean, means uh, for the Old Testament people to be sanctified. And much of what was in the New Covenant is built, from, um, is, 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 is built upon the Old Covenant. And they're not that distinct as we would think. Um, and that's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Um, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will uh, pass away. And whoever teaches anyone to, uh, to uh, anything different, he says, to relax the law is the least of the kingdom of God. But he who teaches and does these things will be great in the kingdom of God. And that's what Paul is essentially getting to. You're preaching a false doctrine and, and you're preaching um, legalism and this and that. And Jesus even says that anyone that preaches otherwise... Um, is least in the kingdom of, of heaven. And that's what, we, um, that's what we see. So then what with the law? Right? Who do we agree with? We agree with both. We agree with both. We agree that we are no longer under the law. 
Um, but we also agree that we are in some sense under the law. Why? Because the law was established by faith in us through Christ Jesus when he established the law of love. And that's what we're getting to when we get to Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 13 and verse number 14. For the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 13, that the law that God gives the New Testament Christian is a law that is written upon their hearts. See, you find that in Jeremiah chapter number 31, and verse number 31, as well as in Ezekiel um, chapter number um, 36, I believe it is. Um, that That in... Jeremiah 31, 31, you read these words. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. By covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law on their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And then in Ezekiel chapter 36, you read these words in verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And he goes on. And the idea is this, in the, in the old, under the Old Covenant, there was so much rebellion and lawlessness that eventually Jesus, or um, God, gives a new covenant um, that Hebrews explains to us, and Jesus delineates it, the new covenant is the new covenant of His blood. That when it's inaugurated, um, it will accomplish things that the Old Covenant never could accomplish and never once did. At the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews says that um, it never saved a soul. Right? They were all saved by the grace that was in Christ through the propitiation that He made there upon on the cross. So a new covenant is coming that will accomplish what the old one can't. How will it do that? Not by writing a, a, a law upon uh, stone tablets, but by writing a law upon your heart and putting a spirit within you that will accomplish the spirit of the law and not only the letter of it. And that that law is essentially love. That's what he's arguing in Galatians. That's what he's arguing in Romans. And that's what he argues in Romans chapter number 8. If you were to turn there, you would read in Romans chapter number 8 that great statement. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. We've already established that, right? For the law that could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And I take that to mean not that the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled in us as Christ um, um, accounted to us His righteousness, although I think that's true and argued from other places. I take this to mean that we are no longer under the law and its condemnation and its, and its curse, as Paul argues in Galatians. But now that Christ is working in us through His Spirit, those who walk according to the flesh, and the, the, the fulfillment of the law is being fulfilled in us. Like in Galatians chapter number 9. And what is that? That's the law of love. Right? That, um, and you say, well, I thought grace and law were opposite of each other. And they are, in that sense. Right? 
Um, you know, I thought John chapter 1, that Jesus Christ came bringing grace, and that well, Moses brought the law, and that Jesus Christ came bringing grace. He did. He did. But if you're going to argue a total contrast between grace and law from that passage, then you have to carry on, because that's not the whole verse, right? That Jesus Christ came, or that Moses came bringing the law, but Jesus Christ came, came to bring what? Grace and truth, Right? There is truth, and truth is not in opposition to the law. It's actually, they're built upon one another. That, the, this, that, that statement isn't to, to bring a total opposition to um, grace and law, but that grace establishes the spirit of the law in the life of a believer so that now they can fulfill it and walk in it according to the spirit of God. That now that you've been saved by the grace of God and under new covenant blessings and administered a new heart, that, Jesus Christ, that, 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 that God says in Jeremiah as well as Ezekiel that now I put a new heart and a spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Well, what's the summary of the law? And what's the summary of the Old Testament law? It's, it's love. What's the greatest commandment? And upon these things, in the second greatest commandment, and upon these things all the law hangs. That it's holy and that it was good and that it was righteous. And that the, the problem was is that the people weren't. Right? That the law was good in the Old Testament, that it was that, 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 that there were righteous laws, and they were essentially laws of love. Right? Men, don't be sexually immoral with your neighbor's wife. Why? Because that's not loving your neighbor. Right? That don't lie. Why? Because that's unloving to your neighbor. Right? Don't worship another God. Why? Because that, 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 that essentially you hate God. And essentially you love yourself. That's the nature of man. When we go back to, you say, what, how did all this tie in, right? When you go back to Mark chapter number 7 and you read what the, the great problem with today is, is what? It's the heart, right? Well, what's the problem with the heart? You get to that catalog of sins and he says, from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And, and these evil things come from within and they defile a man. You know, what's the problem with man? Is it adulteries? Is it uh, wickedness? Is it lewdness? Is it an evil eye? I'll posit the answer is no. You know what the problem with man is? Is that he loves himself. And he thinks himself. He's prideful. He's arrogant. He's boastful. He thinks he deserves things that he doesn't. Therefore, he pursues every woman. He objectifies them. You know? He thinks that he has a right to uh, look and to glean and to do this and to do that. And it doesn't matter who he does, even if it's hatred against his wife um, or against this person or that person he hates. He, hate, he may not say that openly, but he does. It's an, act of, it's an act of hatred, right? Well, Evil thoughts, lewdness, deceit, covetousness, all these things. The essence is, is that man is born with a sinful nature who is enamored with himself. Therefore, he will, if given the opportunity, he will not restrain his hands from whatever his heart desires. So graciously, God has given us things like government. So graciously, God has given us things like parents. So graciously, God has given us things like the church. Why to restrain men? And that's why you see the nation in the condition that it's in. Why? Because government has ceased to be what government should have been and ordained by God. Thus, you see lawlessness. And you see, what you see is just the fruit and the manifestation of evil men's hearts. Grabbing for what they want. And it will not work, you know. Um, President Biden can stand up and say we all need to come together, but under the, uh, under the design of what they're trying to promote, it's every man for himself. That's what it is. And what it will end up, the lawlessness will end up in is self-destruction. Why? Because whenever somebody oversteps this boundary, then I will take them to task for it. And you don't have coming together. You don't have unity. You only have that in the gospel. Why? Because the gospel, men died to themselves. And establish a new law. 
A law that is love. And the Old Testament and New Testament give us concrete expressions of what that looks like. And I'm not saying in, in any way that we need to go back under Old Testament dominion. No, we're done with that. And I'm not saying that we're under Mosaic covenant or economy and we need to go back to that. Not at all. But I am going to tell you that it's profitable. Why? Because it's, it's how God communicated to men in days past and it was holy and it was righteous and it was good and it was a way to teach us how to love our neighbor. How? As yourself. As yourself. And this isn't a modern day idea of you need to love yourself before you can love anybody. Paul and the other writers in the New Testament and the Old Testament assume that you love yourself. <laughs> you know? Like that's the assumption. That all this life that you've been living and leading that has just been enamored with yourself and all of the rewards and accolades and buildings and barns and all this that you've just been um, establishing all, all throughout your life, like the way that you loved yourself then, you need to love them now. How you sacrifice for them in days past, you sacrifice for them now. Um, that, that, that love is actually the law. You say, I thought, love, I, thought, I thought we're not under the law. We're supposed to love. What if I told you that law, love is a law? What if I told you that one day you'll be held accountable to God one, one day and you'll give an account for the fact that um, if you're an unbeliever, you didn't love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That one day we're going to stand before God and He's going to, that, that's going to be part of the standard. Did you love me? Like that law, that love is a law. And that, a good, and that, 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 that law that is written upon your heart and mind could be summarized in that. That's not only that. Upon that come the expression of love one to another. And thus the New Testament is replete in examples of our responsibility to one another. Right? That you're to love one another in John. You're to be devoted to one another in Romans. You're to honor one another as yourselves in Romans. You're to live in harmony with one another. You're to build up one another. You're to be like-minded with one another. You're to accept one another. You're to admonish one another. You're to care for one another. You're to serve, to bear one another's burdens. You're to forgive one another. You're to be patient with one another. You're to speak the truth and love to one another. You're to be kind and compassionate to one another. You're to speak to one another. How? In Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You're to submit to one another. You're to consider others better than yourselves. You're to look to the interests of others before your own. You're to bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one another, to love and to good works, to show hospitality one to another, to employ gifts that God has given. Why? For the benefit of one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults one to another. And it goes on and on and on and on. The New Testament, um, the, the, the law, that was established in Christ by faith is a love for himself and a love for one another. You say, well, it doesn't even say in Galatians that we're to love God. It's assumed that you love God if you love one another. Now, Paul doesn't have to go into it. John even explicitly states that in 1 John. that How can you say that you love God whom you've not seen if you don't love um, those whom, or your brothers whom you have seen? And the conclusion is, is that, um, that if you're not loving one another then we can conclude um, that you are not loving God. That the love of God, from the love of God, flows the love of one another. And forgive one another. Why? Because, Christ, for, you know, because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. That the law that is established in the New Testament, that we are to abide in and abide by, is a law of love. And that's what he, I think that's what he means whenever he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians, that's what he says in, as well as in, in Romans. 
that he's saying that if you do, in some sense, externally, even, right? So, so, so the, 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 the fulfilling of the law is not a matter of external observance. Let me get that. Okay, I need to lay that out. Because that's where the legalist goes. Right? It, the, but the law is a matter of having a renewed heart in which love operates so that I am doing good to you. And you are doing good to me. Um, Paul, as well as the other Christian writers, I believe throughout the ages, have understood it as saying that you do not do that if you don't do it ex- that that if you do it externally and are not compelled by love, then you are not fulfilling the lo- the commandment to love your brethren at all. That the law prescribes the action, but the commandment is prescribes the action. But love contains or compels the action forward, and those are the only actions that will actually amount to anything um, in the last day. So God gives a new law, but it's really an old law. It's a law upon which even the Old Testament um, was uh, based upon, you know. And you can go through, and I would encourage that as you go through the Old Testament. How do you interpret the Old Testament? Is it you just transpose it on the new? No. But it is applicable. It is profitable how, to make you um, the man of God that God desires for you to be equipped for every good work, you know. So when you read, um, you know, about when the, the, the commandment to build a fence around your roof, you know, you just go home and flatten out the roof and build the fence around it. The answer is no. No. And there's so many cultural uh, gaps with uh, us and them today that it would be a practical impossibility to go to the Old Testament and rebuild an Old Testament economy. You know, unless you went to live with Israel. And much of the things that, that were done then aren't even done today. There's so many cultural gaps that you can't fulfill all the Old Testament law, and that's not the point. But there is a moral application oftentimes, right? Why? Because they had flat roofs. So it was a, a loving thing to do to your neighbor to build a, a, a fence around it, or a parapet is what they call it. Um, why? Because you don't want your, your neighbor to fall off of it. You know? And you don't want the kids to fall off of it. <laughs> you know? Because that's unloving to your neighbor. So love your neighbor. How would that equate for today? You know? We could apply that in a hundred ways. Right? Don't leave a gun sitting on your kitchen table when you have visitors over or when your kids are around. Why? Because if they pick up the gun and they shoot somebody else or shoot themselves, man, you're responsible. You know, there's a responsibility given to God, uh, to, 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 to the men of God and to women of God and to Christians to take care and to love our, our neighbors. And it's actually this love that will um, fulfill the law, right? That no matter what you're about to do, I would encourage you to go to the, the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, and find concrete expressions of loving towards God and towards neighbor. Uh, but before you're about to do anything, you should ask a great question, is this loving to my neighbor? In Acts chapter 10, that's exactly what Paul does. Paul understands that he has liberty to eat whatever it is that he wants to eat. You know, under the old covenant and under the traditions, um, they wouldn't eat things sacrificed to idols. Why? Because it was sacrificed to pagans. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm summarizing this. Um, Paul comes to the conclusion, I can eat anything. Why? Because everything's declared clean. And they didn't really, they didn't really sacrifice those to other gods anyway because no other gods exist, right? But I'm going to restrain from that. Why? Because I'm going to love my neighbor, right? Because if he's a new believer and he doesn't understand that and he upholds that as sin in his life, that when he looks at this, it's going to be sin for him. So I'm going to love my brother. I'm going to refrain and restrain from liberty, the liberty that I know that I have in Christ. Why? Because love is the law that governs my heart. Even when there's not an explicit commandment, although there's explicit commandments you should follow, but outside of that, in, in, in any scenario, you should ask, is this a, placing a stumbling block before my brother? Is this loving to my brother? Um, is this going to cause him to stumble along the way, to fall and to sin in his own mind, in his own conscience, in his own heart? If it is, I need to refrain from it. Okay? There are certain things I will never do that I think I have liberty to do. 
and because of the community and the culture that we live in and the church culture that we live in. You know, there are certain things that pastors will never be able to do and should not ever have to do and should never waive their liberty like they should be able to do it um, because of the damage it will do to the body of Christ. At the end of the day, you know, God has written upon our heart a law of love that is expressed and manifested concretely in the Old and New Testament. Um, but even more than that, we learn from Christ's example how to govern ourselves as He um, was, was a sacrifice um, to us. And how He gave up so many rights and privileges and different things and liberties that He had. Why? For the sake of the church. For his bride. And you're to express that same type of love. And it's that type of love that the world does not understand. You say, oh, the Old Testament law, it's icky, it's mean, it's overbearing, it's gross. God didn't think of it like that, you know. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse number 5, you read these words. And the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood. Make sure I got that right. Maybe in chapter 5 and verse 4. Sorry, I went too far. I went to Leviticus. There's some good stuff there too. But um, in Deuteronomy, what you see is you see verse number 5 of chapter 4, Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments. Right? So what did you teach them? Statutes and judgments. Just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore be careful to observe them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has such great statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Moses is writing to the people of God, and he's saying that whenever you carry out God's statutes the way that God ordained, the world will look in and see, and they'll say, what wisdom is this? Like, what kind of nation is this? Can you imagine the pagans coming in who had immigration laws but welcomed people under certain statutes and judgments, right? But when they came in, they openly welcomed them. And what would they say? The Queen of Sheba comes and says, you know, um, the half has not yet been told, right? Like, who governs like this? Why? Because let's take, for example, slavery. What most people don't understand about Old Testament biblical days is that slavery was universal across nations, And it was much like the slavery that we know of in days past. right? But slavery under the Old Testament um, economy and under the Mosaic law, God governed it in such a way that they would come in and they would say, you you pretty much treat your slaves like one of the family. You know? You don't go kidnapping. You don't go to this. There's there's pretty much two reasons that somebody would have been a slave, um, either in debt to a family or or in um, a prisoner of war. Now, they didn't just go out kidnapping and enslaving for their own selves. No, but there was already an established um, practice uh, universally and globally um, that, God, um, that God moderates and governs such that when they come in, they're like, oh, you're, <laughs> you know, your slaves are... What love? What love? The way you treat your animals, oh, what love? The way that you have a Sabbath, the way that you set them free after seven years, oh, what love? You know, the way that husbands relate to wives and the way that wives relate to husbands. Oh, what love. 
You know? Because when I go back home, you know what the pagans do? They throw the slaves out with the chattel. You know, whenever you go to the book of, of Rome, whenever you go to Rome, you know what they do with their wives? Um, they have a compact with, uh, the, with, with the authority of Rome that they can kill any child or any, any uh, man or, any, or the man can kill the wife or any child and just and, and remarry and start a new family. And he can do it over and over and over again. Um, so whenever they come into the church, they say, oh, what is this? You know? You think that it's, that it's um, overbearing. You know, whenever, or the, the world today in, the, in American culture thinks it's overbearing for husbands and wives to be ordered in a godly fashion where wives submit to their husbands and husbands lovingly lead their wives and they govern their children in their homes. Like we look at it from, a, from an American, you know, Western perspective and we think, oh, what oppression. You know what the pagans would have done? They would have came and said, oh, what love is this? You know, like husbands don't treat their wives like this. They would have been the liberals of the day. You know, they treat them as chattel and as slavery. They do with their children what and whenever they want. Can you imagine what the, church, uh, the uh, pagans and Gentiles walking into the church at Galatia or Rome and other places, especially Rome, you know, in Eastern Asia, and they, they would have looked and they said, what is this? You know, what husband does that with his wife? Well, let me tell you, a husband that believes that uh, his wife is an image bearer of God, you know, and who by Christ's example loved his bride so much that he gave himself for her. So I'm going to lovingly lead my wife. As Christ lovingly leads His church. Therefore, I am the willing to lay down my life for her. I am to bring her in. I am to love my children. They're image bearers of God. He's given me a responsibility and a duty. You know? That's why He governs slavery in Romans or in Ephesians chapter 6. You know? Why? Because you are to be distinctly different. Um, Philippians chapter 2. Um, you are to carry within you a law that does not exist within the world. That governs all of your activities. Why? So that whenever you know that the world looks in, they see a light um, that is undeniable. It's undeniable. Is it um, Philippians chapter two? After that great treatise on Jesus Christ humbling Himself, um, He says these words. Therefore, my beloved, in verse twelve, as you have always obeyed, not as my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why, Paul? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God's working in you. You're working with Him in some sense of sanctification. So do all things without complaining and disputing. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Right? Men and women, you're to labor within the economy that God has given us. How? Holding fast the word of life. That which governs um, our love to our families, our economy, and our churches. Um, so that you refrain from certain activities like complaining and disputing. Which are what? Inevitably selfish. Right? When was the last time you just complained for the glory of God? And you can do that. There is a righteous anger, you know. And you can complain about, um, the, like the prophets did, but um, most, of all, most of the time it's complaining and disputing about work and these restrictions and that thing and this and you know, about our children and about that we don't have this and we need that and all of those things. Refrain from that sort of thing, he says. Why? So that you're blameless and harmless. Children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Why? That you would shine forth as lights, Matthew 5. You're the light of the world and a city set up on a hill cannot be hid. That it is going to be your moral character oftentimes that shines forth His light and is a platform for the gospel message. And that's what you see in 1 Peter chapter 3. Right? That's what you see in no, 1 Peter chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 2. 
as slaves are to govern themselves as Christ governed himself. Ladies are to govern themselves as Christ governed himself with a gentle and a quiet spirit as they carry themselves within the home. Even without a word can win their husbands. Why? Because he's, probably already, he's already heard the gospel. It's not saying that the gospel is not necessary. But it's saying there's a certain point in which you just carry yourself and you prove that the gospel has accomplished what it is in your life by the, by the love that you have for your husband. And I think you can extrapolate that to husbands and wives as well. You know, husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. Why? Because Jesus is understanding of you at this time. You know, he's patient, long-suffering with you at this time. Like, love your wife and love your husband and love this world in such a way that at the end of it, they just scratch their eyes and they say, what is this law? I thought Christianity was just about do's and don'ts. I thought it was about earning salvation. I thought it was about this and that. No, no, no. Let me tell you about a Christian the other day that like I don't understand. You know, like he just did it. I can remember my mom crying one time. You know, because a, a Christian, a faithful Christian, gave her a gift, and she just looked at. She said, "Why does she do that?" You know, like I don't even know her from Adam. You know, and it just brought her to tears. And people were like that all over the world. You know. Um, where the law is just expressed in love, concretely manifested in the commandments that it gives. You know why? Because we're short some days, short-sighted, and we don't, we don't get it. So God's law governs the love that we are to have um, one for another. It doesn't govern in a sense of Old Testament economy. It doesn't govern it. We're not under the Old Covenant, right? Um, but the Old Covenant is profitable um, in such a way that we can glean from it um, principles and how we are to love um, one another, such that when the nations look in and the people look in, they say, what wisdom is this? You know? What wisdom is this? And you see that manifested under the new covenant um, in a much more vital way as God law, writes His law upon our hearts. Is the law icky, uh, sticky, mean, and oppressive? Yes, if you're an unbeliever, it is. It is. Listen, today, if you're an unbeliever, you're under the Old Covenant, Old Testament law. You know? And um, in some sense of the term, you're under the Adamic Covenant, um, where God requires of you to be perfect. Um, but the promise is given in Genesis 3.15 that one would come. Um, one would come in, as a second Adam and a last Adam, and he would accomplish that which the others could not. Listen, church, you're not under the Old, the old Covenant law at all. That was a covenant for Mosaic economy. Um, you're under the Adamic covenant. You're a Gentile, um, chances are. And you're under Adam's responsibility. Um, and you cannot fulfill that responsibility. Thus, the second Adam and the last Adam came to accomplish what you could not accomplish uh, in himself. He lived a life of sinlessness, thus that upon his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, that that righteousness upon your faith and repentance could be accounted to you as your righteousness, giving you a new heart and establishing in you a law which was not there before. Um, the law of selfishness condemned you, and the law of love um, will govern your life from here on out, or should, should. I um, mean, it glorifies God and it changes the world. That's what it does. It brings first and foremost honor and glory to God as you exude His character and nature as He wills to do in you, as you work and He wills to do in you of His good pleasure. As He sanctifies you and makes, his, makes Him more like your son. Galatians 5, we didn't read on, but that's where He gets to the law of the fruit of the Spirit. As the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in you, um, it influences not only your home but your church and all the world as you truly exemplify a law that the world does not and cannot have 
outside of Christ. So uh, the question for you today is, is, you know, how are you doing? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Now, I listened to a man give a testimony yesterday. Um, somebody had shared it on social media, just 45 minutes, and God raped me over the coals, you know, how selfish I am. You know what? Maybe he was um, truthful. Maybe he wasn't. He seemed like he was, and he had a true understanding of Christ. And, you know, God gives us so many commands just to love our neighbor, love our church, you know, and give ourselves over and without reward and without, um, without any strings attached, just simply loving um, one another, abandoning self, you know. And that's going to be one of the ultimate um, um, roots of sanctification, you know. Talk about anger. Talk about adultery. Talk about lust, you know. I don't know how many times I've tried to counsel men on lust and pornography. And it ultimately comes down to, yeah, you need to cut off your hand, and yeah, you need to pluck out your eye, and things of that nature. But those things are good and wise here and now. But at the end of the day, um, Galatians chapter number 5, or chapter number 3, in verse number 5, you hear these words. Um, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he not do it by the work? Does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Ultimately, at the end of the day, we can restrain your hands long enough and we can restrain your eyes long enough, um, but your heart will run wild. And that God, through His spirits and the hearing of faith and the Word of God and the pursuit of the Word of God, uh, must change your mind. That the goal of the uh, encountering the New Testament, the Old Testament, the Scriptures is not inherently a behavioral um, change. That the legalists had the behavioral change under wraps. Uh, but God's people are to, be, um, are to be pierced in the heart and in the soul, the very intents and desires and thoughts. Are, uh, Hebrews, the sword of the Spirit is to pierce us such that it divides it and, um, and reaches it. Thus, men, if you're... If you're um, Struggling with lust, you know what you need? You need the Word of God. You need the Spirit of God to teach you. To change your thought and your reality inside, in your mind. You need a renewal of mind. You need a transformation. You need God. You need to come to the Word of God and walk away believing God's Word about women and about Himself and about you. We need to stop being selfish and we need to stop loving our wives. We need to understand that women are not an objective um, tool for our pleasure. We're not to, 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 to gain pleasure on the backs of, of their sin. Or upon women altogether. Um, we're to change our view about God and how holy and how righteous He is. And we're to change our view about ourselves. And we're to, 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 to retain God's reality about man, about women, about marriage, about God, about everything. Thus, flowing from that will be fruit of, of guarding yourself against immorality, anger, and a hundred other sins. But if you can get to the bottom of most sins, then it's your pride and selfishness. And you can uproot that um, in the glory of the cross in Christ. Um, because of the love that He's expressed to you, there's no doubt in my mind that you'll love others. And for men, you will not look at other ladies the way that you used to. You will look, you'll not look at your wife the same way that you did before. You'll not look at the world the same way that you did before. Why? Because God has transformed your mind. That's the ultimate goal. So you're loving your neighbor. You say, no. Um, well, then where's it falling apart? You know? Um, is it falling apart because you don't know and we're ignorant of what God's Word says on it? And you need to get into God's Word and pray His Spirit. Just illuminate your heart, your mind, your thinking. Um, if you say, I just don't know how to do that, come to me. Or come to another man. Like, we're here. We're here. And we've battled through a lot of that. And we'll walk with you. I'm not saying that everything is taken care of in our own hearts. But man, um, God has been precious and gracious and sweet to us in the midst of it. Um, so come to us. God's given the church as well as the Spirit and the, uh, and the Word to help you and to help me love each other.
Are you actively engaged? Are you loving one another? I pray that that's the case. And that's the law, you know. That's the law of the new covenant. And again, I'm not arguing against... Um, again, I know that there's probably multiple different uh, positions on that, and I look forward to engaging in some of those afterwards. I know that this is not anything less than a controversial issue, uh, but I did want to drive home. I didn't want to drive home last week, just legalism, 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 you know, you're going to hell if you're a legalist. Uh, We're legalists think we're going to hell if we're not, you know. Um, But the true heart of the issue is the heart. And under the new covenant, God regenerates the heart and writes a new law upon it. Thus, we are to submit to that. And that's the law established by faith in Christ. And oftentimes we find concrete expressions of that under the old and new covenant. Although we are not under the old covenant, we're not under the Mosaic economy, we are not to re, um, reestablish that in its purest form, but we can glean from it how to govern our lives now and how to love one another. So let's pray about that. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glorious nature of your gospel and your word. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is just to glean from you. Father, some, uh, some difficult things, no doubt, some hard things to understand. So we praise you that you have given us a spirit, Father, and uh, patience and long-suffering in the midst of our sanctification, um, that you've given us all these things, Lord, um, to bring us about final salvation. Not that it contributes or earns it, Lord, um, but that out of the gratitude of heart that we have, um, Father, just out of the gratitude of heart of what you've accomplished in us. Father, we, learn, we, we, we walk and, um, and work and labor Um, because of the new heart that you've established in us. And we trust that that will bring us to the end by your Spirit. Father, as you cause us to walk in your statutes, now that you've given us things to do, you've given us a work to labor in, Father. Um, And I pray that you'd help us to do that. I pray, Father, that it would be loving. And I know that if you're in it, Father, it will be loving. And I pray that um, as we go forth in this world, Father, as as your church, established by Christ, according to your Spirit, Father, and that we would be a light to a lost and a dying world, that our, as husbands and mothers, our husbands and wives, that we'd be a light to our children, as husbands, a light to our wives, as, and so forth and so on, Father, um, as you just continually remind us of Christ, his sufferings, his glory, and a hundred other of the great um, truths of the faith. Father, um, there's no doubt in my mind that um, the world will be watching now. I mean, in a governing and a nation, Father, in a governing body that is lawless and continuing to degrade. I mean, it is imperative now, Father, that we carry ourselves not only as a church but as individuals, Father, and carry ourselves um, in Christ's likeness and in love one towards another. Father, and we trust that this will be an agent by which you change the world all around us for the glory of God. So, Father, help us build kingdom Father, as we observe the law of love. In Jesus' name, amen.